of faith by looking at the Nicene Creed and the life of Rahab. We boiled the Nicene Creed down into two summary statements about the Christian faith. And because I'm a teacher and I like to torture people, I'm going to ask you if you remember what those two summary statements were. I know this is about five weeks ago. I see the looks on your faces that you might need a refresher. Anybody remember? Okay, well, since I'm here and you asked, I guess I'll go ahead and do a quick review. Well, we said that the first uh, tenet of the faith is that God is the creator. Uh, I believe in God Almighty. Uh, the, the, see, I believe in the Father, God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. I believe in, in Jesus Christ, his only son, uh, who is equal with the Father, but also who uh, created all things. So we can summarize the first aspect of the creed or our faith as the God who creates. And the second half, does anybody remember the second half or do you need to? I heard somebody say it. Redeemer, yeah, we say that God is the Redeemer. So the God who created is also the same God who redeems. Jesus Christ took on human flesh, he was crucified, came back to life, ascended into glory, and he redeemed his people or the church along with the Holy Spirit. So these are the two aspects of our faith, and we see this confessed in the Old Testament by an unlikely person, a prostitute named Rahab, who changed her life because she believed Yahweh was the creator and the redeemer. Well, that was the foundational virtue of faith. And this morning, we're going to be exploring the Christian life of hope, and hope I call the sustaining virtue. Now, as a teacher, I'm going to drill you some more and ask you some more random questions. Uh, if you go into a cathedral, uh, usually like an old-fashioned Gothic cathedral, you'll usually be able to spot symbols for faith, hope, and love. So if you were to think, how would an artist usually depict the symbol for faith? What would be the typical symbol you might see? A cross. Very good. That's the traditional symbol for faith. And the easiest one is the symbol for love. What is the symbol for love? A heart. Yeah, Valentine's Day has made that abundantly clear. I think it's going to be hard to move away from that one. But what is the symbol we use when we talk about hope? An anchor. Very good. So historically, the anchor is a picture of a hope. We sang that in one of the songs. Uh, You know, there's this idea of an anchor, of a hope uh, that keeps us centered during the storms of our lives. Hope is what keeps us grounded during moments of fear. And hope is the anchor that keeps us stable in times of uncertainty. I believe these artists who depict uh, hope with an anchor get that idea from passages like Romans 5. You see, Romans 5 starts out with somebody having a little bit of hope that goes through a time of suffering. But whenever we have hope in suffering and we remain strong, why we develop endurance. And as we go through trials with endurance, we develop character. And as we go through trials with more and more character, we develop greater levels of hope. And hope never puts us to shame. But I think the symbol of an anchor doesn't quite capture every aspect of hope. Romans 5 shows that hope actually grows. As we successfully endure storms, our hope increases. It would be as if the anchor gets bigger after each successful storm. As we develop character through suffering, our hope becomes 
greater. Now, if, if I were an artist, which I am not, my symbol for hope and all the other virtues would be that of a muscle. Because it's something that we exercise and it is strengthened. It's something that we work out and we train and it grows and becomes stronger. But to this day, I have never seen an artist using Arnold's biceps as a symbol of hope. And I think that's a shame. (laughs) Modern artists typically refer to the heartbeat or a pulse that you might see on a heart rate monitor as a modern symbol of hope. And this is what we have on our kids' club t-shirts. We have a cross representing faith. We have the heart representing love. But in the middle, we have a heartbeat. Hope is like a new heartbeat, a new life that is pulsating through us. I believe these artists are pulling from passages like 1 John 3, where we see that hope has a purifying aspect, specifically those who hope in Christ Jesus. We will be purified as Christ is pure when we hope in him. So hope does not put us to shame. Hope actually transforms us. It transforms us into the image of Christ Jesus. Now, before we go any further, I'm going to put all my cards on the table and tell you that of the three virtues, hope is my favorite. You're not really supposed to have a favorite among the three virtues, especially if you are a pastor, but I have a special soft spot in my heart for hope. Uh, One of the reasons that I like hope is it is actually my son's Chinese name. Uh, I picked out a Chinese name for my son, but my in-laws assured me that if I named my son that, he would be picked on by everybody who truly knew Chinese. So I deferred to my wife's uh, name in Chinese for my son and uh, loosely translated his Chinese name means uh, a golden ray of sunshine at dawn that brings hope uh, after a dark night. So I have to like hope. It's my son's Chinese name. Uh, But a lot of my research that I do for my uh, theology degree actually interacts with hope. One of the things I I look at is how uh, things like beauty uh, lift our hearts and lifts our minds to something that transcends us, to something that is beyond us, which is a property of hope. It's something that takes us above our current situation. I also like hope because my favorite Christian holiday is all about hope. My favorite Christian holiday is the ascension of Jesus Christ, when he in his resurrected body goes to live at the right hand of the Father. Now, I like this holiday for the same reason that I like hope. I think this is a lost holiday, the ascension. And I think hope is the lost virtue. If you think about it, in our church, we tend to emphasize faith. We ask questions like, did you put your faith in Jesus? And we preach sermons about putting your faith in the gospel. I think less commonly we hear questions like, do you hope in Jesus? And less frequently do we preach messages like, do you hope in the gospel? It is also common to hear messages about love. We're called to love our neighbor, and unfortunately we are called to love our enemies. But even less common than we hear messages about loving our enemies, it's less common that we hear messages about hoping in your neighbor's potential future in Christ. And I have yet to hear a sermon about hoping in your enemy's potential future in Christ. 
But perhaps God has a plan to redeem our enemies as well. Now, to be clear, I am not advocating that we diminish our calls to faith and love. I'm only advocating for greater levels of hope. You know, politicians may win elections by promising hope, and Hollywood may sell a lot of movie tickets by stories entitled A New Hope. But this is only a false hope that our world offers, which actually increases hope's opposite, fear. Think of the news headlines we hear every day. The bees are dying, and we don't know how plants will survive, and there is a food shortage on the horizon. Fear. There is a bear market, and we were planning on retiring in a few years, and now our Bitcoin purses are empty. Fear. The pandemic is finally slowing down, but wait, monkeypox is on the rise which sounds horrifying to me, and we have fear. Let's face it, we live in a culture of fear. So it's time that we leave the false hopes of this world, those of political promises, of ease and comfort, and even of pay raises and bonuses, and we must dive deeper with the anchor of true hope in Christianity. So to explore the life of hope further, we're going to briefly look at the Lord's Prayer to see hope and its transformational power. And we will also look at Colossians 1, to see an example of life that is anchored in hope. So go ahead and pull out your bulletins and look at the Lord's Prayer. And while you're getting your bulletins around, you might be wondering, okay, well, I can understand that you would pull out a creed to talk about faith, uh, but why would you pull out the Lord's Prayer to talk about hope? Uh, Well, for hundreds and even thousands of years, uh, faith, hope, and love has been a framework for teaching Christianity, and uh, they have usually associated the Apostles' Creed with faith. So when teaching faith, they refer uh, to the creed, and they can build out curriculum on that. Uh, And with with hope, they refer to the Lord's Prayer. Uh, In a few weeks, we'll talk about what love is connected to, but I'll keep you in suspense Uh, For the next few weeks, uh, if you want to know, start looking up Augustine's catechesis and you can see what he did with it. Uh, But I want to only look at a a few phrases in the Lord's Prayer, and I want you to notice the transforming power of prayer. It's the same as what 1 John 3 says about hope, that it transforms us, excuse me, and prayer transforms us as well. So the first phrase that I want us to look at is, I believe, the second phrase. So, our Father who art in heaven. So, we've said the the first part, we've gotten God's attention. What's the first clause we're going to pray? Well, it says, hallowed be your name, or hallowed be thy name. We begin our prayers by asking that God's name would be great. The clause is essentially saying, God, make your name great. Make your name be respected. Make your name be honored everywhere. Now, praying for someone else's name to be great goes against all of our natural instincts. We want to be great. We want to have a great name. When I was growing up, if you asked me in elementary school what I wanted to be when I grow up, I I probably would have said an NBA basketball player or a professional soccer player in Europe. But I was an elementary school teacher for a decade, and if I were to ask my students who were the same age as I was, what do you want to be when you grow up? Do you know what the number one answer I heard was? 
YouTubers. They all want to be YouTubers. And if you think about it, it's a pretty sweet job. You get to wear flip-flops. You get to go around playing pranks on people and doing whatever you want. And on top of that, you have millions of people that follow you. You have recognition and you have a great name. But Christ teaches us not to hope in our name. He teaches us to hope in God's name, Yahweh. This clause is an invitation to pray along with King David in Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Not to the kings and presidents of this age, not to the celebrities and the billionaires, and certainly not to us, but to the name of Christ be the glory. Through the Lord's Prayer, Christ teaches us to hope in God's name, not our own. And as we hope in God's name, we are slowly transformed. I hope that you realize that God is great already, with or without your prayers. His name is already the best name there is, regardless of how many times we pray that prayer. As we pray that God's name would be great, we change. His name becomes great in our lives. And after praying for his name to be great, we must move on to the next clause, which is very similar. It says, make your kingdom come, or let your kingdom be great. In the same way we pray that God's name would be great and hallowed, we pray that his kingdom would be great. This is a call for us to hope in God's kingdom. Now, I don't think that any of you have your own kingdoms, but all of us have some type of assets, some type of retirement fund and possessions and maybe even property. And of course, we pray for those things to increase, whether we like to admit it or not. And at the end of the day, we kind of put our hope in those things that we acquire. And sometimes we try to get as much as we can. I recently saw a news story that somebody is trying to sue Elon Musk for a quarter of a trillion dollars. Uh, That would be quite the payout if he gets that win. But Christ teaches us through the Lord's Prayer that we should hope in God's kingdom. So I want you to ask yourselves, do you hope in God's kingdom? Do you hope in the church? Do you continue to trust and hope in the Holy Spirit's working in the church, even after the church has let you down. Many evangelistic strategies try to bring people to Christ without bringing them to the church, almost as if they're embarrassed by the church. But this is a contradiction of our faith. The church are the redeemed people of God. And guess what? They're right. The church is full of sinners, and we are a little bit embarrassing. In my view, the only way to get into the church is you have to admit that you're a sinner. So, of course, we're full of sinners. So we can say, yeah, guess what? We are jerks. We are sinners. But guess what? We serve somebody who is not. And that is what unites us, not our sin. That is why we're here, because we are hoping in Christ, in his name and in his kingdom. And the final phrase I want us to look at is, Thy will be done. We pray, Lord, let your will be done and not our will. Just a few days ago, I was sitting outside enjoying my coffee at a coffee shop, which is right next door to a pet shop. 
and the owner of a husky that I'm guessing was 60, 75 pounds, the owner of this husky had a will and a desire to go into the pet shop, but this husky's will was not aligned with the will of the master's. This husky wanted to be anywhere besides the pet shop, and I sat there and enjoyed a 20-minute wrestling match between this master and the husky. Whenever we pray, let your will be done, essentially we're praying we want our wills to be in line with the wills of our master. But we have a problem. We like our freedom, and we like the ability to choose. Now, I've been back in the United States for about two years, and on more than one occasion, I've had people tell me that what makes America great is that we have the freedom to choose what we want. Well, the freedom to choose what we want might make us a great nation, but it doesn't make us good Christians. When we exercise our wills, we're like the dog fighting against its master's will. But whenever we take our wills and we submit them to God's will, why we are transformed into a greater will, into a greater purpose, into a greater image. Think about how Jesus Christ prayed in the garden, a prayer that I continually refer back to. Let this cup pass from me. Translation, I don't want to die. Don't send me to the cross. I want to live. I, am a, I have a human nature and I don't want to die. But Jesus continues, nevertheless, not what I want in my human will, but what the divine will is, let it be done. Jesus' will submitted to the divine will. We also see a prayer like this from the Virgin Mary. Whenever she is confused and has no idea how she can bear a child whenever she is a virgin. And in her confusion, how does she pray? She says, let it be. Let it be according to your word. Let it be according to your will. God, I don't know how you're going to make sense of this, but guess what? I hope in you. So whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer, let thy will be done. It means that we are offering like Mary and Jesus Christ in the garden our own, let it be. Let it be God's will in our lives. In this prayer, we place our hope in God and we are transformed. We are transformed by hope. St. Paul was a person who had been transformed by hope and we will explore how his attitude of hope can inspire us in Colossians 1. So go ahead and open Colossians 1 if you uh, don't have it open still. It's I think page uh, 983 in the the Pew Hymnal. Colossians is a little bit of a tricky one uh, to find. It's short. And we're going to look at hope in this passage. So this is one of the most important passages uh, in the Bible. You're not supposed to necessarily rank passages in the Bible. But if you want to understand who Christ is, Colossians 1 is one of the go-to passages. But we're just going to focus on hope. What does this passage say about hope? told you to open there. Now I need to open there. All right, so I want you to begin and look at Paul's attitude that is transformed by hope. Look at verse 3. How does he open up this letter? He says, we always thank God. So that is him and Timothy saying that we are always in a state of thanksgiving. Uh, If you jump down to verse 12, you see him again saying we're always giving thanks to the Father. So verse 3 opens with him giving thanks. Verse 12 is about giving thanks. So kind of everything in the middle is him giving thanks. 
Now, to understand why this is so uh, significant, why he's giving thanks, you have to understand Paul's situation, where he's writing this letter from. He's actually in prison. If you take a look at verse 24, you see, now I rejoice in my sufferings. So how is he suffering? Well, he is in a Roman prison. He uh, has been there for you know, several years. He can get visitors, but still he's being held against his will. Now, prison is usually not associated with a place of hope. It's usually a place of despair. But this is not Paul's first time being incarcerated. We saw in Acts 15 that Paul has been beaten. Uh, he's been stripped of his clothes. Uh, and he's been thrown in prison in the middle of the night. And him and his companions, what do they do in prison? Well, they sing hymns and they glorify God. And even the jailer and the jailer's family come to faith, repentance, and hope in the gospel. Well, Paul is not writing this letter in that time he was incarcerated. He's writing this one much later in Acts 28 in a Roman prison. So we must ask ourselves, why is Paul so thankful from prison? Uh, if I were in prison and I was writing a letter to my friends, I would probably you know, say, hey, contact the lawyer to get me out of here or you know, send me a nail file and my birthday cake so I can start working away at these bars. But here Paul is giving thanks. So why is he thankful? We'll take a look at verse 5. Verse 5 begins with the word because. So remember I said that this is really one long sentence. So he's going to tell you why he's giving thanks. So verse 3, we give thanks to God always, and he tells you the reason by the time he gets to verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul is thankful because there is hope. And it's not even necessarily his hope. He's thankful that another group of believers have hope. Now, I've said before that love is the greatest of these three virtues, but each passage that addresses faith, hope, and love has a different emphasis 1 Thessalonians has all three, but faith is the one that is brought to the forefront. In Colossians, it is actually hope that is brought to the forefront, and this is what has transformed Paul, why Paul can be in prison and why he can still give thanks, why he can still rejoice in his suffering is because of hope. It's also the reason that the Colossians can love one another. There is a common hope between them. It is their hope laid up for them in heaven. It's why Paul is excited and it's why the Colossians are excited because they have the same purpose, the same ending, the same final destination, a world of hope. So he's in prison, yet he's giving thanks because of hope. So where does this hope come from? What is the object of their hope? Are they hoping to get a new emperor? Are they hoping that they have the winning lottery tickets and they're going to have a big payout? Well, we must keep reading verse 5. So verse 5, because of this hope laid up for you in heaven, and there's a, a period or a full stop there that isn't in the original, and it says, of this. Uh, it's a little bit ambiguous in the English, but that's that this is referring to the hope. So it, it, basically it reads, uh, this hope that you heard about, uh, you got before in the word of truth, the gospel. So this hope that he's rejoicing in, it's actually the hope that comes from the gospel. Hope is connected to the gospel. It's not like it's something that comes later. It's not uh, inseparable. Or excuse me, it's not separated. Hope and the gospel are inseparable. This is one of the reasons that I think the ascension of Christ is so important in our gospel presentation. If we don't have the ascension, 
what do we have? It means Christ has died and he's, he's somewhere else. But if we have an ascension, why there is hope that we can be resurrected and never die again. So as we embrace the hope of the gospel, we will become transformed and we will begin to worship in the gospel. Now, one of the things that even St. Peter says about Paul's writings is that they're confusing and they're hard to follow. And one of the reasons that it's a little bit hard to follow Paul is because he likes to go on sidetracks. He would have been a great Baptist minister because we all like to go on sidetracks from time to time. Uh, But take a look at verse 5. He ends verse 5 with the word gospel. And then he kind of goes off into spontaneous praise about the gospel. So he says, you know, the the gospel, end of verse 5, verse 6, which is come to you as indeed in the whole world and is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since this day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. And, And he keeps going. Now, that's sandwiched in there, but it's not really why he's writing to the Colossians. It's just a side note. Uh, You can really see this. If you look at verse 4, it says, Since we heard of your faith. So he's starting to say something. Since we heard of your faith, he ends up mentioning the gospel, goes on the sidetrack. And then in verse 9, he brings you back. He says, And so from the day we heard. So it's like he realizes, Oops, I went on the sidetrack. Let me get back to what I was saying. Uh, The longest time Paul does this is in the book of Romans. Uh, Romans 1, he mentions the gospel, and literally for the next 14 or 15 chapters, he talks about the gospel, and then says, oops, yeah, by the way, I'm coming to visit you. This is why I'm writing to you, but I had fun talking about the gospel for, you know, 15 chapters. So that's what Paul's doing. He's so excited by the gospel of hope, just by mentioning it, what does he do? He burst forth into worship. Now, the reason that I bring this up is because he's going to do it again. But this time, it's going to be longer, and it's going to be a little bit more significant to the uh, the church's view of Jesus Christ. So if you look at verses 13 and 14, he doesn't mention the gospel this time. He mentions the Son. He mentions Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And then what does he do? Well, he bursts forth into a hymn into a song. Verses 15 to uh, 20 are actually a hymn. This is one of the things that the early church uh, sang. It was part of their worship, but it was also part of their faith. So instead of having me read it, that's why I have you with your Bibles open, so we can read it collectively. This is a hymn which is calling for a corporate response. So church, go ahead and let's read it together. Verse 15, all the way down through verse 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." 
So you see how hope has led him to have this hymn, to rejoice and to worship. And now I'm going to have uh, another question for you. How would you summarize this hymn in two points? How would you summarize it? I heard somebody start to say it. He's the creator. Very good. Look at verse uh, 16. Uh, By him all things were created, uh, whether visible or invisible. The exact language of the Nicene Creed comes right out of here in this message of hope. So we see God is creator and Jesus Christ is creator. And what is the second point? He's the redeemer. Oh, wow, you guys are brilliant. He is the redeemer. He's the head of the church and he is reconciling all things to himself. So the same hope or excuse me, the same thing that we have the faith in is what inspires us to hope and is what inspires us to worship. Now, we could preach on this short hymn for hours and hours, but it's Father's Day and we have, you know, presents waiting for us at home, so I won't, won't do that. But one thing I do want to draw your attention to is the end of verse, or middle of verse 20 there. It says, through him, through Christ, He is reconciling to himself all things. This is one of my favorite things to meditate on. And it's one of my favorite things to explore how the church has interpreted this passage. You see, they believe in something called a cosmic liturgy. Uh, We are not known for being a liturgical church, but we have liturgical elements, things that we do in worship uh, as a tradition that inspire us to worship. Well, they would say that as Christ is reconciling all things to himself, and since King David tells us that even the heavens declare the glory of God, that all creation is being reconciled in Christ. All things. So whenever we watch the sun go down at night and die, and come back to life in the morning and rise again, why that is telling us the mysteries of Jesus Christ and the death and resurrection of him. And whenever we see the leaves fall every autumn, but come back to life in the spring, while we are seeing all things being reconciled, all things have a purpose, all things make sense to us because of Jesus Christ. And this is not just in nature, like the stars and the leaves, but all people are being reconciled in Jesus Christ. All communities And perhaps even our enemies will be reconciled in Christ. All things are being reconciled in Christ. Now, if you want something to meditate on Father's Day, think about the implications of this, that all things are being reconciled in Christ. But as exciting as this meditation is, nonetheless, Paul gives us a warning or an exhortation in verse 23. He says that we must continue in the faith, We must be stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. The gospel is our anchor. It is our pulse. It is the new heartbeat of life, and we cannot swerve from that. We must be anchored in Christ. We must live in Christ and have our hope in him. And after he mentions the gospel here, he goes kind of into another short sidetrack but collects his thoughts once again for verse 24, where he says that even though he is in chains and that he is in suffering, he is not sad and sorrowful while he is in prison. Rather, he is rejoicing, and he still has hope. And he refers to the mysterious nature of this hope in verse 26 and verse 27. It is a mystery that has been revealed now, 
in Paul's time and in our time. And what is this mystery? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is something that nobody can fully understand, but it's something that we can begin to grasp and to grasp Christ's life in us. We must understand Christian suffering. Paul experienced the life of Christ through his suffering. In verse 24, Paul says something else that's pretty outrageous. He says that he is making up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings for the church. At first glance, this could appear, it could appear that what Christ did on the cross was not sufficient, that there was some lack in there. But I do not believe that Christ's sufferings on the cross lacked anything. I don't believe his suffering on the cross was incomplete. Rather, it accomplished exactly what it intended. He was the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But I do believe, however, that Paul's suffering in the prison helps the Colossians understand Christ's sufferings more fully. As Rahab was an image of Jesus when she helped deliver the Israelites, Paul was an image of Jesus Christ in his sufferings. This is why martyrs are held in such high esteem. They give us pictures and images of Jesus Christ. Like a martyr, Paul suffered for Christ while he was in prison. And if Christ is in you, then when you suffer, Christ is suffering with you and in you. If Christ is in you, then whenever you are suffering the loss of a loved one, the tears you cry are not your tears, but the tears that Jesus Christ cried over the loss of his friend Lazarus. And if Christ is in you, then whenever you suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed because you are like Paul, making up for what is lacking and helping display to the church Christ's love on the cross. If Christ is in you, then when you are mocked, thrown into prison, tired, misunderstood, and embarrassed, you have hope. Because if you identify with Christ and his sufferings here on this earth, then you will share with him in glory. This is our final destination as humans, as glorified creatures waiting to receive our prize. Because the glory of Christ is our final destination. The glory of Christ is the hope of the gospel. But first we must suffer with him. We must enter into the garden of Gethsemane with Jesus Christ and pray the Lord's prayer along with him. Let your will be done. Let your kingdom come and let your name be hallowed. We must, like the Virgin Mary, offer our own prayer of let it be. Let it be according to your will. Let it be according to your kingdom. Let it be according to your great name. The hope of the gospel is the promise of salvation. But it is not merely a ticket of escaping punishment. It is a ticket to glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And in closing, I will mention one other final brief point. When we say Christ in you, the you is actually plural, not singular. So the good old-fashioned southern grammar helps us understand what it means. It means Christ is in y'all. You all, not you, singular. Christ lives in you as an individual, and he lives in me as an individual. 
but he also dwells among us. He lives in his church. He lives in the brothers and sisters that we enjoy coming together and worshiping with. Thus, we can learn from one another as hope. We can see one another as fellow anchors. We can see one another as sharing the same heartbeat. And it is not just a heartbeat for us and for our congregation, but it is a heartbeat and it is life for the world. And perhaps one day, that new heartbeat of hope will beat in the hearts of our neighbors and even in the hearts of our enemies. After all, Jesus Christ is reconciling all things to himself. But the transformation of our neighbors and our enemies, that leads us to the virtue for next time, which is love. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you that you have given us your son, that he is our anchor, that he is our new life, our new heartbeat. And we thank you that your gospel message is one of hope, that no matter what storms we face in life, no matter what difficulties we go through, we always have something to look forward to. Not because this world is getting better, not because uh, we have good news on the horizon from the media or from the marketplace, but because we have an eternal hope in heaven that is secured for us. May you grant us steadfastness and stableness, and may you grant us an eager expectation for that hope you have for us. May we pray all these things in the hope of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.